Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there. Welcome to The Moment. Thank you for joining me again today. I'm really happy to have my uh, my friend, co co writer on his memoir called Change of Seasons, John Oates. John, how are you today, man? I'm pretty darn good, Chris. How's it going? It's good. It's always good to chat with you and catch up on things. I want to get to really what prompted this conversation in a minute. But John, just, you know, recently kind of a big, a big loss in the music world uh, was Eddie Van Halen. And you and I were talking off mic a little bit about how you guys would, your lives would occasionally intertwine back in the very large early to mid 80s, right? How, how would that happen where, where Hall & Oates is a touring band and Van Halen would also kind of interact? What would, what would have brought that together? Well, I guess, you know, um, I mean, if you look at our, the arc of our, our respective careers, it, it really did uh, peak during the 80s for both groups. And uh, we we're both playing arenas and large venues. Uh, we, um, we did tour at different times. So during the periods of time when Van Halen would go off the road, we would um, kind of share a lot of production personnel, lighting people, security people bus drivers, um, roadies, technical people. So a lot of that um, happened. And uh, because that happened, of course, you know, we would run into each other on the occasion where we would find ourselves in the same city or in the same country for that matter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was a pretty, uh, pretty high, uh, high speed, uh, you know, uh, accelerated life that we were all leading. But occasionally we would uh, kind of hang out. Uh, I wouldn't say we were close friends, but we definitely had a lot of mutual respect for each other. Yeah, I was going to say, I knew you didn't know him well, but in terms of, of, of game changers who kind of come in and alter the playing field with their playing, is that how you kind of looked at Eddie Van Halen? I mean, did you have a, an opinion while he was kind of becoming who he was back then, late 70s, early 80s? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, as just a, just as a guitar Our player, you know, he was, he was dazzling. I mean, seriously, Uh, he, he, and he was, you know, um, I, you know, I knew a little bit more about him than, than his, his, you know, amazing musicianship. You know, he, he was a great producer. He played keyboards. Uh, You know, he was an all around amazing musician. And uh, all those records that they made a lot of, you know, pretty much had, had so much to do with him and his musical sensibility. Um, So, you know, I, I, I could never, you know, as a rhythm guitar player, I could never even begin to, uh, you know, uh, approach the type of technical, you know, um, chops that he had. And uh, he was always, you know, so incredible to listen to and just just so impressive, you know, the things he could do. And, you know, he would take his guitar apart and rebuild it every night in the hotel rooms. You know, he was he would swap pickups. He would you know, solder his own wiring and, and modify the guitars. So, you know, he was a, a true, a true guitar geek in the best sense of the word. Yeah. I don't think people realize this sort of the, the hands-on, um, you know, gearhead kind of slash craftsmanship approach that he took to, to building what he did, but he really was a player inside and out. I mean, he really did 
not just yeah, the instrument playing, but the extends extends well. beyond extends beyond the guitar itself. You know, to the to the amps that he used and everything. He he was you know was very very particular about making sure that he could do exactly what he needed to do and and get the sounds that he needed to do. And those those sounds are defined. You know, they defined the band. They mm-hmm. in a sense they defined a, a a generation of guitar players. Absolutely. Well, John, you and I were chatting a few weeks ago. I had seen, I had passed along a video to you that you had seen already. There's a couple of twin brothers named Tim and Fred Williams who go by Twins the New Trend. They've become really popular as as young guys, young African-American twins who will listen to music that predates them and sort of record their uh, first blush reaction to it. And they had come upon the track Private Eyes <laughs> and, and they listened to it and their reaction action was as it is typically with with their their youtube show very kind of charming and watching them warm up to something they haven't heard before but the private eyes reaction was really special a lot of people check that out including you what did you think when you watched that clip of these two guys for the very first time hearing one of your biggest hits like that <laughs> i i thought it was as you said charming is a good word um they they really um I, I just like the fact that they they didn't seem to have any preconceived uh, preconceived attitudes or opinions about the the song or the music. They just took the music for you know for for on on its face value. What does it sound good? Does it move them? Does it make them smile? Does it make them react? And you know I think it's in a way they're they're kind of. Um, they're emblematic of, of the new generation of music listeners who are no longer force-fed or um, influenced by things like rock journalism, by terrestrial radio, by big record companies. Uh, the new generation of music fans just listen to music, and if they like it, they like it. They don't really care whether someone told them it was hip or someone told them it was the, the hot the hot, uh, you know, the hot button of the moment. So that's what I like about them. They just listened to the song. Um, they thought, you know, I, they kept uh, they kept calling it what, per, the, the video. They were looking at the video, and we were dressed in trench coats and uh, fedora hats, like uh, you know the the kind of a cliche classic uh, private eye outfit. And uh, they kept calling us Professor Gadget or something. Like that. <laughs> Inspector Gadget. Inspector Gadget, right. That, that's what I thought was so funny is that they were using their own frames of reference to kind of define it, but they were also reacting to the, to the best parts of the song. They were getting the song. It wasn't a novelty. Mm-hmm. They were totally dialed in to, yeah. to why that's such a killer cut and, and the parts that jump out and the, the background vocals and everything. And, and like, to your point, they're respectful of what they're listening to. They don't, they don't go at, at it with a chip on their shoulder. They're really open to sort of discovering new music. In, in the yeah. purest of way, just playing it, reacting to it, or the video or whatever. And, and it was working so hard for them. But you made a comment to me on our chat that day that, you know, when you start breaking down sort of the ages here, they're, you know, they must be, I don't know, they got to be, what, in their 20s or so. Mm-hmm. And sure. so when that music was made, they weren't born yet, right? <laughs> Not even close. And, and so it, it sort of takes you back to how old, when you were in your 20s, what you were listening to, just how generationally now, what, what influences us and what, what impacts us is, is really radically different than, say, what you would have been playing in the early 1960s. That's right. Well, you know, when I, when I, when I was 20 years old, so that would have been, say, 1968-ish, uh, <laughs> um, if I was listening to something that predated me by 20 or 30 years, 
I'd be listening to something from 1938 mm-hmm. or 1940, which is actually the music I listen to now, <laughs> ironically enough. Um, but nevertheless, when I was 20 years old, if I would have been referencing music from the th- 30s and f- early 40s, it would not have been considered hip. It would have been, I would have been a total outlier. I would have, people wouldn't even have understood why I was listening to that music or regardless of how good it was or how much I enjoyed it. Um, It just wouldn't have been something that a kid of the 60s generation would have referenced. Sure, I might have referenced the music of my childhood in the 50s, which was only, say, what, 10 to 15 years before, prior to that, but certainly not 30 years before that. Right, right. What do you think that says about how music has changed? Because it really, to me, it makes a real powerful statement about how culturally music has changed and, and what affects us and how it affects us. And, and, and just what you were listening to as a kid, it, like you say, when you put the same template on it today, it's radically different. Well, you know, I think it's, it's, it comes down to the, um, the, the true classicism of the genre of rock and roll. So if I was 20 in 68 and I was listening to music in the 30s and 40s, it would have been pre-rock and roll, predated right. rock and roll. When rock and roll began, it really, I think it was a quantum shift in, in you know, in terms of, of styles uh, that, I mean, it's, a, I, I hate to say it, but no, I don't hate to say it. I love to say it actually. Uh, the genre of rock and roll uh, is a more enduring style than, the, than some of the music that preceded it. Yeah. Um, you know, not to say that the music that preceded it, it was, was any less uh, interesting or musical or, or moving, but there's something about the music that began in the earliest days of the rock and roll era that still endures to today. I mean, you can go back and listen to the music rock and roll from the early 50s, and it still sounds cool. But then again, if you go listen to music from the 1920s, it might not quite sound so cool. So um, rock and roll is definitely um, <laughs> to to uh, to repeat a well-worn phrase, rock and roll is here to stay. <laughs> but And you're part of the generation. You're, you're sort of the first guard rock and roll fan. That's what I think is interesting as well, is that you're, you're the generation that first got to experience rock and roll at an age where it really meant something when you're, you know, you're a kid, basically. And you're part of that first vanguard of listener that got to experience Little Richard, Chuck Berry, you know, the first real American influences coming out. What do you remember as a kid about the first blush of you hearing something like that? The first time you might have heard Elvis Presley say um, as as a kid in the mid-50s. It's really the mid-50s, I think, when the explosion is, is officially kind of on, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I do say often that I, you know, that my life parallels the rock and roll from the very beginning. Um, I did hear music and I was aware of music prior to rock and roll. My parents were the big band generation. Um, you know, we listened to the, the great the great music of the big bands of the 40s. Um, I, I remember, you know, swing and things like that. And I remember the really, you know, insipid, pop music that was popular in the early 50s you know the the patty pages and the how um, much is that doggy in the window kind of exactly thing, right? and that stuff like that of course then you know there was always some shining light like you know like peggy lee and you know fever and things like that but but really uh i was you know by time i was five years old um and rock and roll began i 
I knew that something very important and very uh, groundbreaking had happened. I didn't, of course, I couldn't articulate it. You know, I was just a little kid. All I knew is that I wanted to hear it. It sounded good. It, it made me happy. It made me want to dance. It made me want to, you know, meet girls and be part of that, you know, whatever that culture was, the teenage culture that was, that was, you know, emerging at the time. Um, and, you know, and, and sociologically, you know, it kind of corresponds with the actual, with, with the, um, the recognition that there was a teenage generation, you know, there, there were prior to that, I think, you know, if you look at kids, you know, in, in, in the American kids, especially, you know, prior to the fifties, you were a kid and then you were an adult and there really wasn't a teenage transitional period, you know, you, you know, you, you were a little right. kid and then you went to work or you went to war or. I was going to say the know. war probably had a lot to do with that, where it, it eliminated adolescence and basically 17, 18, you were ready to go. If they were needed, yeah. you could go. Exactly. And so then now there's a, there's a, you know, in the fifties, now there's the emergence of this distinct teenage culture, which, you know, is music, it's fashion, it's hairstyles, um, you know, it's all those things. And, uh, you know, and that, and that's really, I, I, I knew that was happening. I saw it. I was too young to part, be part of it because I was still a little kid. But, you know, I, I knew that radio had changed. Radio formats were beginning to play rock and roll music. Um, it was really, uh, it was just very, a very exciting time to turn on the radio and buy records. But you also had a moment, right, where your sister in New York City uh, took you to a, was it your sister took you to a movie? No, that was my aunt. Your, your aunt, rather. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It takes you to a movie uh, in Times Square, right? Like at the Paramount yeah. or somewhere. And yep. you, you firsthand, because of your aunt, you, you firsthand get to experience the rush of the reaction to Elvis Presley without seeing him in person, right? Tell, tell that story. Because I remember you telling me this, this is a sort of a epiphany for you. Yeah, when Elvis is, you know, I, I, I had heard Elvis on the radio and I was a fan as a little kid. Uh, my, my, uh, we, we would, even though we had moved to Pennsylvania, the rest of our family lived in New York City. And my aunt, who was my godmother, um, wanted to take me to the, to the movies, to the Paramount Theater, where the first Elvis movie was playing. And, um, you know, on, if you look on the, on the, you know, on the old vintage photographs from that time, you'll see the picture of the Paramount Theater and above the marquee is this huge, uh, you know, uh, vertical uh, uh, poster of Elvis. Oh, it's like several stories tall, like a couple stories tall hanging, hanging on the building. Right. And so I remember getting to the theater and all of it, there was a huge line, mostly teenage girls. Um, in the line and we went into the theater and in those days you know the movies would be would begin at like 10 in the morning and they would run every two hours you know throughout the day into the evening Uh, so we went I I believe you know I'm pretty sure we went in the afternoon and I remember sitting in the theater and the uh, you know lights went down the the movie began and the opening scene in, in Love Me Tender if you if you go back and look at it is a I believe it's like a you know it's like a shotgun shack in the south with a porch and you know very rural setting and there's a field in the background and all of a sudden the entire audience of teenage girls begins shrieking and screaming and all i see on the screen is the shack and the porch and 
way in the background in the field is this little tiny figure of a mule and a guy with a plow going across the screen. And of course, because the girls had been in there all day and seen the movie multiple times, they knew that was Elvis. And so they're screaming before you could even see him. He was literally a speck on the screen. Um, if the director actually thought about that, he's, he was a genius. I doubt, I doubt whether that's true, but regardless. Uh, then, of course, you know, Elvis makes his appearance, you know, and, and the girls go nuts. And so they're screaming basically through the whole movie. Every time he opens his mouth, they're screaming. So it, it was just, um, it was definitely a revelation for me to, to know that, uh, wow, you know, <laughs> There's, a, there's, a, there's some serious reaction. Now, I know that in that same theater, the teenagers in the 1940s screamed for Frank Sinatra, too, because my parents were there. and they My told mother me was, that. too. My to- they told me about it. Um, and I remember my father telling me this story uh, about Frank Sinatra because uh, a lot of people didn't like him at the time. Um, there was a lot of, you know, kind of mixed feelings about him when he first began. And someone had thrown some pennies at him. And... Uh, he, he picked up the pennies off the stage and threw them back and said, you better keep these. Someday you might need them. I won't. And that, was a big, that was a big anecdote that my father used to like to tell me about Frank Sinatra. Wow. Well, little did you know as a kid there in that theater that one day you would be up on, on many stages across the world with people screaming and, and kind of carrying on the same way. But Yeah, I had, I had stuff thrown at me as well, so I'm, I'm, I'm right <laughs> in there. Like yeah. Sinatra. Yeah. But, uh, but no, it's, it's interesting that that made such an impact on you and that at least, you know, showed you the, the relation between fans and sort of an idol and just what that feels like to a kid. That had to be a really powerful thing. And, and again, that's the birth of rock and roll. That's not just a, a teen idol. That's, that's really right there, kind of ground zero for what happens in the next couple of years, uh, obviously with other bands coming out. So we're up against a break right now. We're going to take a quick break. I'm talking with my always special guest, John Oates, about his life and revelations about music and history. And we'll be right back here on The Moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover more rare photos stories and trivia it's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams roadside baseball coming this june available for pre-order right now on amazon.com have you become a member yet sign up now to become a member of voice america it's always free and easy plus you get to take advantage of some great member benefits get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels keep track of your favorite episodes shows and hosts in your own customizable library find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites plus you get insider access with our newsletter membership gives you more sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. 
want to welcome you back and uh, talking with my special guest and good friend, John Oates. John, we were talking about your reaction as a little kid when your aunt took you to a theater in New York to watch Love Me Tender. We spoke earlier about young millennials' reactions to your music, uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates' music, and how your music really seems to, to weather really well over the course of time. And I wonder, you know, not all music from the late 70s and early 80s does that, but yours does seem to have a real timeless feel that young people react to. What do you think it is that, you know, recently I saw that uh, uh, you make my dreams reach, what, it's one billionth play or something like that? Yeah. It was one billionth stream. Yeah. One billionth stream. I mean, that's that's impressive by any by any standard. What do you think it is about the music that you guys uh, made and continue to make that that wears so well, not just with my generation, but people who are, you know, teens, twenties, thirties. Because they're really at this point, there's not an audience that you lack. Everybody seems to rally around what you do. Not ironically, they really love the music. What do you think it is about those songs that that holds up the way they do? I really, you know, I. It's really hard to say. That there's just one thing. Um, it it's it has to do with the the songwriting, you know, the actual compositions, the craft, the craft and the inspiration that went into writing those songs. Uh, they, they um, we we Daryl, you know, Daryl and I being two writers, and also we've had we've had co-writers like Sandy and Jana Allen, who were uh, important to come up with uh, you know a certain perhaps feminine sensibility to yeah. the lyrics, which help which uh, helps I think in a way. Um, but the, the, we're able to tap into some sort of universal thing. And I don't, you know, we don't know how we do it or how we did it. Uh, but it seems to have stood the test of time. And, you know, most, you know, there's a lot of music that is considered, you know, at first when, when we were put into the category of classic rock, you know, when they began to call us that right. after our, our run, you know, in a way I kind of, I, I didn't really like that idea. You know, it sounded to me like it was a, you know, uh, basically a euphemism for old, old rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, but in reality, if you take the actual um, true definition of classic, that means something that is stands the test of time. That that has no uh, that 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 really transcends time and place. Uh, that it's so perfectly executed that it um, here again lives on through the generations, through the through through the centuries, through time. So in that regard, I'm really proud to be called classic rock because if what we've done it has a classic. Uh, quality or has a classicism uh, attached to it, then it is very, uh, then that's, uh, you know, that's, that's putting you right up there with the, um, the, the great music in history. Absolutely. But something else that you pointed out to me years ago that I never really thought about, and I, I think it also helps define why the music lives the way it does, why it lives on the way it does, as powerfully it does, is when you look at especially the, if you just took the hits, the, the hits by, by Hall and Oates, um, they, no two really sound alike. And I think, remember you pointing that out, that, that there's such a diversity and stylistically, there's so much going on song to song that there wasn't one way to really um, compartmentalize you guys, you know, whether we're talking ballad or soul or R&B or whatever it happened to be, song to song, the, the biggest hits are really pretty different from each other. Yeah, it's one of the things I'm. I think I'm most proud of of in our in our recording career is that 
we never tried to do a sequel, so to speak. We never tried right. to do Rich Girl 2 or, you know, Sarah Smile 2. Um, you know, you, I mean, you, you, you said it perfectly. Every song is different. Uh, every song, you know, but yet at the same time, even though the songs are different and they don't sound like, you know, um, copies of, or, you know, redos of, of a previous song, they're all very identifiable. Um, a lot of that has to do with Daryl's voice being the signature, uh, you know, vocalist. His voice is so distinctive that, you know, in the moment you hear him singing, it has, you know, it brings you to a certain place. So um, in addition to the composition and the songwriting itself, you know, there's certain production elements and the fact that, you know, Daryl's voice is so distinctive that really everyone knows who it is, but it's not, you know, you, you also know that you're hearing something new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, I think there have been a lot of films, obviously, that have helped, you know, uh, continue sort of the, the legacy of the music and i think the way your catalog has spun out has been really interesting as well and that it's a, in a very organic kind of way but that it allows younger audiences to embrace what you guys did you know you know 40 some odd years ago what i liked about the two guys who were analyzing your music that we talked about earlier twins the new trend is they were also reacting to the video and, and for anybody who grew up in the MTV generation, which is an entirely different set of musical listener, I don't know what they were called back then. That was generation something else, the MTV generation. Or maybe that's just all it was called. But they got to learn about you guys um, visually. And I know that some of those executions are things you look back on now and kind of wonder maybe how you got put into certain visual situations and videos. But even those in their own kind of strange way, watching the Private Eyes video, um, it, it holds up in kind of a fun, innocent way. I mean, you're not, it's not rocket science what you're doing. It's a little bit silly and over the top, but there's something authentic about that. What was that particular video? I know there's a little bit of a story behind the night you did it. You were hitting the road like the ne- that night or the next day or something, right? When that thing got yeah, shot. That was, that was the first music video that we did for MTV. And um, at the time, there was no template. There was no artistic you know, template or look for, a, for an MTV video. Um, everyone was flying blind. Uh, they approached us because we were friends with the, the guys who were starting the channel uh, in New York. And they basically said, hey, we need content. We need music videos. And our question was, what's a music video? And they said, well, we don't know. You just, just sing your song, you know put up a camera and play your song and lip sync it. And uh, that's your video. So there was no, uh, no one, you know, we, we took it upon ourselves to camp it up a bit with the trench coats and the fedora hats and the private eyes, uh, you know, outfits. But what happened was we were at SIR, which was called studio instrument rentals, where we rehearsed uh, in midtown Manhattan. And uh, we were at the end of a, you know, we would rehearse before we'd go on tour learning all the new songs from the new album. And of course, that was the Private Eyes album at the time. And um, we, the, our tour bus was literally idling at the curb. And it was evening. Uh, we had finished rehearsals. And now it was time to make our video before we literally got on the bus and drove out of the city. So um, we took a little break while uh, they came and pipe and they took a pipe and drape, which is a, you know, a very bare bones, you know, metal piping with some black uh, drape or drapery that hangs down to the floor. And they surrounded us with a kind of semi semi circle of pipe and drape. 
And um, someone came in with the outfits, with the trench coats, and we put them on. <laughs> and we played the song a few times and we camped it up and jumped around. And I remember, if you look at the video closely, T-Bone Wolk, who's our bass, the late, late great T-Bone Wolk, um, our bass player, he had never done anything like that. And he was really nervous. And he, he said, what do I do? What do I do? I said, and I, and I didn't know him very well. We had just kind of started working with him. And I said, just stand there. Don't move a muscle. And then every once in a while, just turn your head. And so that's what he did. And every time I see that video, I, I just have to have to laugh because, you know, that's exactly what he did. And, you know, and of course we had G.E. Smith, you know, hamming it up and jumping around like a Jack in the Box with a guitar. Um, and Daryl and I, you know, jumped bouncing in and out and doing what we did. Um, that became the video. And check out uh, the Rolling Stones first video, um, music video. It's exactly like our Private Eyes video. Start except me up, with, I think, where it's except, super basic, yeah, right? Except without the trench coats. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, black pipe and drape, you know, no effects, no production values. And of course, you know, everything from there went to the moon in terms of, you know, over the top up to the, you know, the Michael Jackson mini miniature, you know, cinematic extravaganzas. And even the, even the stuff, uh, you know, that Tom Petty did for, uh, you know, that there was like the Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, thing. don't come around here no more. Don't come around here no more. Um, which, by the way, was the same director who did our big, our, our uh, out of touch video. Oh, the, the, same, yeah, same, same the infamous sick him in a big bass drum. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, so it started simple, it started basic, and of course, uh, you know, everyone jumped on board and it became a, became a thing to do. And Daryl and I, you know, we never really looked at it like, um, we never really, we should have probably been more involved and more paid more attention to it, and especially in the beginning uh, in terms of what our visual image was like. Uh, but, and it, you know, we looked at it as a great promotional tool that a way that people could see us and we could expand, uh, you know, our reach around the world. Um, that's how we initially looked at it. Well, and, and again, that may have been your, your first official thing that MTV picked up on, but I think that you guys through the 70s always had a pretty good visual eye and were, were ahead of the curve in terms of creating promotional little films to promote songs. You guys had done a few that were that were kind of interesting off Ecstatic. There were several, and I think the one that really, one of the first that anybody had done in the 70s uh, was the uh, the She's Gone video, which was not so much a video as it was a local Philadelphia TV appearance. But you guys went in there with the idea. You didn't want to lip sync your song. So instead, you created this dramatic, melodramatic representation. I, Chris, I hate to, hate to uh, interrupt, but uh, melodramatic or dramatic, I don't think is the exact proper uh, way to describe that. Video. How would you describe it? I would describe it as a masterpiece, Chris, honestly. Um, I would describe it as a stoned out masterpiece. It's, uh, honestly, if people haven't seen it, you can look it up on YouTube. It really is one of the sort of cultish classics of the early 70s. It is mind bending that you guys were in there. <laughs> it's surreal. It's like a, it's an early John Waters film that you're there and you and you and Daryl just sitting on a couch. You, you, you know, is it true? You literally dragged in furniture from your apartment like you loaded in. Yep. We rented a van. That's right. We rented a van. We went to a costume store. We, we pu pulled our, cal our uh, 
chairs and things like that from our apartment. Larry went in. And, you know, after that video, the TV, uh, the, the union TV cameramen and directors were so pissed off at us that they, they tried to have us banned from Philadelphia radio after that. They thought we were making such a mockery of their brilliant teenage television show that they, they called Atlantic Records and said, these guys will never work in Philadelphia again, you know. Well, we'll, you know, who do they think they are? I mean, it was really, it got, it got weird. And my sister, sister real, actually directed that. So you, your sister wrote the script for it. I think we include a picture <laughs> of it in, in the book, change, your memoir, Change of Seasons. But you went out and, and, and bought or rented like a penguin suit, tuxedo kind of thing with these flipper yep. sleeves. <laughs> and and, and Daryl's sitting there with his eyebrows shaved. Look, it, it's just such a strange thing. But I think uh, that really was kind of one of the first experimental musical films of the early seventies that you guys, it, I'm might, sure- it might very well be. We were John Waters fans. I will say the fact that you brought that up, we were big John Waters fans. So there was, you know, him being from Baltimore, of course, you know, so there was that, uh, that, that tri-state connection there in some weird surreal way. Well, it had that, yeah, it had that really kind of strange character look, but it's, but I guess the point is you guys visually knew that, that you together as a duo, there was something very visually compelling about what you guys were doing together. I think, you know, and part of it has to do with sort of the, you know, blonde brunette. There's almost like that Starsky-Hutch balance, right? That we, we like our duos like that. It's almost like a super yeah. duo, right? That's right. The classic duo uh, thing. Yeah. Totally. And, and you guys brought that. And, and I think visually that worked. But, but you guys early on, pre-MTV, had a sense that visually there was a way to, to, to sell your music. And, 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 you know, impact your music like that, where it went in the 80s, like you said, once the wheels came off and budgets were not an issue. Now, all of a sudden, you guys are at the you know full front of it with, with the videos like for Out of Touch and a number of others where it's just, uh, you know, the sky was the limit. And maybe it feels a little over the top, but, but it's also a pretty accurate reflection of the times, isn't it? Oh, definitely. It definitely reflected the times. You know, the 80s were over the top. You know, anyone who uh, who wants to know, you know, look, watch the movies like The Wolf of Wall Street and, and the, the, you know, the excess and the extravagance and the, the chaos of, of, the, of the, the go-go 80s was reflected in, in, the, uh, in the way people approach videos, for sure. Right. Um, you know, I would like to say, I mean, if we're going to talk about videos, the video that we did for the Ecstatic album, which was pre-MTV, was kind of interesting as well. Um, we, the reason we did it, we did a video that's not ver- seen very, very much. There were, I believe we did two songs. Uh, we did Portable Radio and Intravino uh, from the Ecstatic album. Now the I Ecstatic album- for, I think Wait For Me has one as well, I think. It, it might very well be, I can't remember what we did. But we hired a, um, my sister had a, was working for ABC television and um, she, uh, her boss's son was a film uh, student at NYU and we needed something to promote ourselves in Europe and in the Far East and we weren't planning on going there on tour and we thought maybe if we just you know get something on you know videotape hmm. some, some songs and he came to us he was a young film student and he told us about blue screen about what's known as green screen nowadays, which was really a new, a new technology that was just starting to happen at the time. Um, and he said, let's do something with this blue screen. He described it to us. And he, I remember him telling us, you can do whatever you want. 
You can be wherever you want. And we went, whoa, really? And so, of course, the album was called Ecstatic. And on the cover of the album was, was the boombox, you know, which was the, you know, the ubiquitous boombox of, of New York City at the time. Um, so we said, why don't we perform inside a boombox? And he said, we can do that. And so if you can dig that up, uh, and then, of course, Intravino was about drinking wine. And we, Daryl and I do this uh, kind of, um, you know, drunk dance around a giant wine bottle. Um, and so, uh, you know, I thought those, those videos are actually pretty cool. No one, think, no one really knows about those. No, those, those videos are great. Again, those can be looked up on YouTube pretty easily. And, and again, I think it just speaks to the, uh, the fact that you guys were pretty much up for anything. Um, you didn't mind rolling the dice on a little piece of new technology like that. I mean, today on a, on a Zoom call, people can key in their background. Well, this was that before it existed where you could, you know, it's what the weather people did on TV, right? It's how a guy could stand in front of a map and point at, at clouds or whatever. It was because of green screen uh, or blue screen then. But the fact that you guys were, were ahead of that then, uh, I, again, speaks to, to what Hall & Oates were doing beyond just making, you know, great solid pop records, but also exploring other visual areas and i think by the time you get to mtv people don't realize that you guys weren't the new kids on the block you had released eight or nine records at that point um by the time privatizes out and you're you're basically competing against the brand new guard the madonnas and all that sort of thing and and you hold your own i think because you would cut your teeth so many years ago doing things like those ecstatic videos so it's uh, nothing mm -hmm. went to waste it seems like whatever you guys did yeah. We're going to take a, so we have another uh, commercial break here. One more. We'll be back in just a minute for more of our conversation with John Oates and, and talk a little bit about musically where he's at right now, how he's been spending some of this quarantine time. John's been super productive and we're going to hear about that as soon as we come back. I'm Chris Epting and this is The Moment. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover more rare photos stories and trivia it's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams roadside baseball coming this june available for pre-order right now on amazon.com have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. 
Welcome back. Continue my conversation with the one and only John Oates. John, we were saying earlier at the top of the show how, you know, when people, young people today, millennials today listen to music uh, of, of a different generation, say 80s music, how it's very uh, fresh and new and original to them. A lot of music you play today outside of Hall and Oates um, goes back to your youth. Talk about that, that kind of full circle thing about how folk music you would have been playing yourself at folk festivals in the early 60s, you're now revisiting. And, and give us a sense of, of where you're at like right now today at this time, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, you, it hasn't stopped you from making music or exploring new projects and things. So talk a little bit about going back to the beginning and then what's happening today. Yeah, I mean, I... Um I've always had a, a dual musical personality. You know, I, I like to say, you know, I could wear a work shirt and pick up an acoustic guitar and play in a coffee house, or I could put on a shark skin suit and pick up a Stratocaster and play R&B or rock and roll or whatever uh, in a band. Uh, and to this day, I do the exact same thing. Uh, I think a lot of it, you know, I, when I met Daryl, I, I, I was doing both, but I was really much more of a acoustic guitar, folky uh, blues player um over the years you know our 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 collaboration kind of melded our two personalities together and you know it became something else and that became the the music of hall and oats um and over the years that you know my my real early influences of folk blues and things like that never really left but we're certainly not be you know not part of the of the the pop music that Daryl and I created together but it never left me in my heart and soul and I always I always leaned on it uh, in when I was left to my own devices and it really wasn't until the um, late 90s early 2000s when I uh, began to go to Nashville and um, explore the possibility of making music with other people and doing things like that I mean prior to the early 2000s I had never really played with anyone else except Daryl and our and our various bands for 20, over 20 years. Uh, so going to Nashville, I began to uh, be, be part of the new uh, kind of um, emerging Americana music community of roots musicians. And uh, I began to rediscover that, that part of me that I had left behind. And it was really a revelation because I realized that I could, I could carve out a distinct musical personality for myself that was distinct from Hall & Oates by really leaning on my earliest influences. And now by living in Nashville and meeting these, these new musicians, I had a, uh, a kind of a, a musical tribe, a musical community that could help support me in doing that. And that's when I began to, to really dig into the history of, of the music that I knew so well from my youth, but also beyond that, uh, to listen to, uh, to try to explore the music that was really the genesis of American popular music. And um, it kind of, uh, you know, it really, it, it started with my album called Mississippi Mile in 2010, and then really came to fruition with the Arkansas album in 2018. So it's, um, it's been a little bit of a, a chance, you know, I am a history buff, as you know, Chris, and you are too. And um, one of the reasons we bonded so well. Mm -hmm. um, and I began to really look into the history of uh, American popular music and realized that it would, be a, uh, it would be a mistake to believe that American popular music started with rock and roll. And so um, I began to look at the definition, you know, what is a pop song? What is a popular, what is a hit? Well, you know, can you buy it on, on a record? Can you hear it on the radio? Well, if that's the case, let's go back to the beginning of, of radio. Let's go back to the 
to the days when the phonograph machine was first invented. And let's see what music was being played and what music became popular. Mm -hmm. So um, that's really, that was really what set me down this very, very exciting and interesting path to discover kind of the earliest, um, the earliest versions of American popular music. Well, you you definitely are you're one part musical archaeologist, you know, in that respect. It's almost like what Harry Smith was doing. You know, you mine these these uh musical histories, but then you bring it out on stage. And I think in your most re- in the most recent release, Live at the Station Inn with the Good Road Band, uh, to me that really feels like you've you've hit a peak moment there. Uh, j- just the joy on your face while you're playing. I mean, you really can't hide what you're feeling with that band and that setting playing those songs. What, what, I mean, that's a very recent release. Talk about that a little bit. Was that from a performance standpoint, you've played a lot of big shows over your life. Describe that one because that one just look special watching um i've seen you play a lot of times in a lot of different venues but but watching that performance really seems like you're connecting with something special well in my in my previous solo albums which goes back to the early you know 2001 um i i was using a combination of studio musicians and in an interesting way now and now with with the with time on my side i can look back on it and my solo recording career in terms of the way i approached it is it parallels exactly the way Daryl and I approached our early solo uh, recording career. We used studio musicians and producers, and eventually I got to the point where I'm producing myself and, and I came up with a band. And that's so really, it, it's the same exact parallel. It just I just did it in a compressed amount of time. Um, but uh, yeah, you were right. I mean, I knew that when I was making this, when I started the Arkansas album, I knew that I wanted it to be a band. I wanted it to sound like a band. I didn't know whether that band could, you know, I could sustain that band, whether, you know, they they would be part of of the project. But I knew the album had to sound like it was being played by a band. And once I assembled the Good Road Band uh, and we went out and played a few shows together, everybody bought into the project and the guys all wanted to be part of this this adventure, this musical trip that we were on. Um, And it came to fruition live from Nashville recording that just came out in playing live is the band always gets tighter the arrangements evolve, um, the playing, the, the synergy between the players, communication, musical communication gets better. All that stuff happens. And I wanted to capture the results of that. And in, I felt like, well, in the beginning of 2020, I thought I'd be on, on the road with Daryl and we'd be doing a 38-city arena tour, of course, before the world you know, to a crashing halt. Um, but right before that, in January of this year, this past year, 2020, I wanted to take the Good Road Band to a, into a venue in Nashville that I am very comfortable in. I've always had so much fun, and it's an ultimate listening venue with you know about 200 people. And um, I just said, let's go in there, guys, and let's play our show. Let's record it and for posterity, for whatever. Who knows ne- when we'll be playing again? Little did I know that <laughs> you know the, the rug would, would be pulled out from under all of us, but... Uh, I was really happy that we managed to have a great night. Uh, and what you hear on this live album, and, I, and I'm and i very proud of this fact, is unlike a lot of live albums, which are crafted after the fact in, in post-production and fixes and overdubs and, you know, um, you, you know, with the technology of today, you can do almost anything you want. This is a true live album. There is not one moment, not one musical note that's hmm. been altered, changed, fixed, overdubbed, repaired in any way, shape or form. All we did was take the recording and mix it. 
Uh, And so it is as accurate a representation of what happened that night that you'll ever hear. And, you know, you've got players on there who are literally some of the best at what they do. I mean, that's that's the other part, too. Right. I mean, this is it's like an all star band, guys, you've got in there. Oh, yeah. The, the, these guys are so, you know, they become good friends. They've, and here again, and Chris, you know, make the analogy to a sports team and you'll you'll you know this very well. You can take you can take a group of all stars and put them on the field. But until they begin to play together as a team. Right. It's not necessarily a, a team or a band, so to speak. And that's really, uh, that's what I'm most proud of is that I was able to, first of all, I was able to get players of this caliber who are world-class players, you know, Grammy winning, you know, guys who have played with, uh, you know, multiple artists and superstars, um, both in the recording studio and on the road, and put them together, get to keep them together and have them really form a band, a true band. Um, and, and that's really a, a very proud moment for me as a, as a band leader to be able to, uh, been able to pull this together, uh, and, and, and pull it off. You've done other really interesting side projects. One in particular with a guy named David Starr, who's really talented. You, you find these opportunities outside the, uh, the, the glow of Hall & Oates to do things, to, to scratch the creative itches that really mean something to you. What's the, what's the next few months going to be like for you, knowing that it's probably, I don't, I don't know, until you guys hit the road again with Hall & Oates. Is it six months, eight months? We don't really know. So describe for me, we're talking about what else, you, how you're going to spend the next uh, couple of months before you guys are back on the road. What kind of projects are you involved with? Well, after I finished the David Starr project, um, a good friend of mine who's a director, um, film director, reached out to me about a, a project he's doing called Gringa, which is a, a wonderful indie movie about a young girl in Southern California who, um, under some pretty bad circumstances, goes off to Mexico to find her estranged father and shows up on his doorstep and, um, you know, and what happens. Uh uh, he sent me some clips and I thought it was really a great, great project. Um, he asked me if I'd write a song, which I did. And after I wrote the first song, he said, do you have another one? And I said, yep, I'll come up with one. I uh, ended up doing five songs for this movie and becoming the executive uh, producer for the soundtrack. Wow. So it's very exciting. It's really cool. It's great for me to be able to dig into a, to work on a film, uh, especially one that's so such a great, great little film. Um, and I got a chance to, uh, it has a lot of Latin content, a lot of Mexican content. So um, I wrote a song in, uh, that has a partial, partially in Spanish and uh, ended up having a, a really great um, collaboration with a, a young female uh, singer from Mexico named Jimena Sariana. And she and I did a duet in, uh, totally in Spanish. She rewrote the lyrics in Spanish. So I'm singing in Spanish for the first time, which is a first for me. Um, And we've got the opening credits uh, and we've got the closing credits. Uh, So my songs have have a pretty important, um, they're a pretty important part of the actual narrative of the movie itself. Uh, So, and I got to work with a hip hop artist from South Carolina on another song. So it's really just completely different from anything I've done in a long, long time. And I'm really proud of it. And I can't wait for people to hear it. Well, you're, you've, you're making the most of this time. You're not just standing idly by and letting, nope. letting the time go, which, uh, which is amazing. 
Well, John, I want to thank you, man. It's always good to get an update uh, and just sort of reflect with you. Again, we could spend hours talking about your life and career. So if every, if every couple of months we can check in and chip away more pieces of it, I would love that, my friend. But uh, thanks for taking the time, as always. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to talk to you more about this movie when it comes gets ready to be released. It's a date. Let's make a date. We'll do it. Okay. And now I will wrap up and thank John Oates for joining me for the last hour. Always fascinating to chat with John. He's not just a musical legend. He's a down-to-earth musical historian and scholar who really walks it like he talks it, and I am proud to know him. If you haven't read our book yet, Change of Seasons, his, his memoir, The Story of His Life, I encourage you to check that out on Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. But in the meantime, I'm Chris Epting, and we will be back next week on The Moment. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.